Welcome to the Personality Portrait Podcast, where we challenge what we think we know about how our personality works and is shaped. I am psychologist Franco Greco. In each episode, I have a conversation with a guest exploring what has shaped their lives and personality. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking to Amanda Couples, Victoria's lead scientist. Since joining the Victorian public sector in 2002, Amanda has worked extensively in the development of industry and science and innovation policy for over 20 years. Look forward to talking to her today and sharing her personality. So Amanda, what's a quote that typifies you or you take a lot of meaning from? Yeah, it's a quote. Actually, I don't know who made it originally, but it's there's something significant more to be done. And it really reflects on, I suppose, how I regard my work and and personal life. There's always something more to be done. And it, that, I think, typifies for me just motivating to do more and, and to make progress, which is what I always am seeking to achieve. So what, what is that? So that talks to your more your work life, but is it is it also quite a personal do you take it into your personal life as well? Yeah, look, I, I think so. And it relates to, you know, family and, and other things is helping others to achieve their potential. And and it's as much about achieving outcomes uh, as it is about empowering people to be positive that they've got control over the things that they've got control of. So I find that, so I have down moments and no doubt we'll get Mm. to that Mm. but uh, and some of those situations that we find ourselves in as a result of things beyond our control but there's always something that is within our control and I always look for that in both what I do and then when I'm you know whether it's you know with my immediate family just helping them find that that value that they can add that they might not necessarily think about to empower them to get control on whatever the situation is. So so there's always something significant yet to do and we often don't know where to look or how to get there but if you've got someone that helps you think through it then it enables resolution or progress towards a resolution mm. to, to occur. So if you had to put a a genesis on that. What do you reckon that comes from? What did that come from a, a family thing or is it a, something you think you've always had or is something you've developed? Or Yeah, so I don't know. Actually, I've never really thought about it, to be perfectly honest. It's just been intrinsic. But then I had cause to think about family backgrounds and you know in Australia we all come from somewhere and everyone comes from somewhere obviously but when I think about my background I was the first in my family to go to university I'm the best educated of my generation and in part when I go back to where my family came from my grandfather escaped Europe in the 1920s and um, and like many people who are here in Australia 
my forebears came to seek a better life. And and unfortunately, he had a more challenging situation than I found myself in. I think I was born at a better time than, than he was because when he came out to Australia, it was immediately before the Great Depression. And then because he came from Middle Europe, there was all the tumult, you know, the tumult around the Second World War. So, yeah, so he wanted to make a difference. He jumped ship in South America. So he came here very deliberately in search of a better life. And and I suppose I'm manifesting that in a way of this generation, which is to, you know, provide leadership and encourage others to take control and get educated and have a go at getting things done. So yeah. Yeah. There's a long history there that so was it something you, you were conscious of? Like, no. so he so he came from Central Europe. So was was he uh, from? I don't know what country. Yeah. So, so well, we don't really know. Uh, <laughs> other right. than it was his hometown is now in the Czech Republic, and so he came from that Middle Europe area uh, where the yeah. borders change quite frequently. Yeah. And his family did a lot of business in in Germany. He was actually a baker. And oh, actually, no, my grandfather was a chef. His family's business was a, a bakery. And we don't know a lot about it other than his family was dispossessed in, um, in nine, you know, in the 1940s and, uh, and, it, and it's a bit murky <laughs> as yeah, to yeah, exactly yeah. what happened. Yeah. But it's really interesting, isn't it? I don't know. Like, you, you, you sort of, when you're, when you're reflecting back to me, this story is like, I, it's sort of something revealed to yourself later, but it's um, you sort of thought that maybe that was a gen- like a, a starting point of this sort of this this um, this journey at least. You know? I think it it goes to I must have got it from somewhere. It wasn't from an immediate family background when I was growing up, and yeah. So look, I don't know whether it's post hoc rationalisation or what, but uh, when I think about well, where did I get it from? Because Um, My siblings don't represent the kind of ambition and determination that I have. And when I think of my grandfather, he must have had ambition. He must have had determination in absolute spades. And, yeah, just I I find that I, I didn't think about it as a child or growing up. It hasn't been part of my consciousness, but... It's been part of my DNA and not an invi- necessarily an environmental uh, influence, but something that and you know so- something that has driven me internally. And I suppose I am someone who gets a lot of satisfaction out of personal achievement, and it doesn't necessarily mean that. I'm noticed or anything. It's just about doing something, mm, doing something big and making a difference. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that the way you separated out nurture and uh, and experience because one of the thing, one of the assessments you did do around the Big Five sort of uh, sort of talks to that talks to that part that's more inherently uh, inherently you this part about being activity driven right so needing to do things so that sort of talks to more the the extroversion side of you in some ways also this other part this very high conscientiousness side which is a lot of confidence in yourself, you know, uh, and achievement striving, which is sort of part of this conscientiousness, which is more of a trait around 
being task-oriented or completing, completing things or getting things done, right, which sort of talks to this sort of quote about significantly more needs to be done, right, because it, that's, that is something in, maybe intrinsically you rather than experientially you, if that makes sense, developed. But so it's really interesting to sort of went down that, down that path. You talked a bit about that, that family background. I'm intrigued by to find out how, how did it surface as an issue because he sort of said, oh, it surfaced as an issue uh, uh, connected to this background. Was that, did I get that right? Did you, is that what you said? Yeah, no, it was more – so interestingly enough, I didn't – so my grandfather never talked about his previous life and, in fact, he completely disassociated himself from his family. He was never – and, of course, in, in those days, you know, and I'm, so I'm talking – I don't know, 30 years ago, we didn't have mm. the internet. And so communicating mm. with family wherever they were overseas was more difficult than it is today. But it was a, an area of his life that he walled off. And, uh, and I only really first got to understand it a little when I did a school project in uh, secondary school and we had to interview our grandparents. And it's not an uncommon assignment <laughs> that, no, um, <laughs> that kids get asked to do. And I think it's really valuable because, because it does bring out history. And I think, I think it is useful to understand where you came from in in order to I don't know put into perspective how you might approach problems or where your priorities are and 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 so forth and and to be honest I hadn't really thought about it until last year and uh, and I was thinking about my grandparents life and how limited it was so they didn't own their first house until they were oh in their early 50s, it was this very modest fibro shack in the Adelaide Hills in Adelaide. And anyway, I just had reason to think about it and think how tough their life was. They never went on holidays and they had a difficult time during the Depression. And, and I suppose, you know, that's an, another reason why it occurred to me because we were going through the pandemic last year and for people in the 1930s in my grandparents position there were no social services so and I'm um, my mother's unwell at the moment and I was around there and she mentioned how as a little girl her, her mother asked her to sit on the front step and and to tell the rent collector that no one was home because they didn't have money to pay the rent. And it just made me think about how how lucky we are today, uh, but how difficult it was in those days and, and what determination they must have had to, to really make something of themselves and, and which for them was actually just having a standard of living that we would not regard as being a particularly high one. And so, yeah, so I suppose a number of different things made me think about it, but not least of which, how important it is to have the social security settings that we have today, and no doubt they can be better. But at the same time, of course, to be able to afford the situation, you know, the, the, the support services we have, we've got to grow the economy, we've got to pay taxes and all those things that people conveniently forget about when they're demanding an increase in services. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just a confluence of situations. Uh, I think um, I think a lot of people during the pandemic, well, I can't say for everyone, but I guess, and I say a lot of that in my own clients, you know, 
pandemic actually provided a whole range of reflection points, didn't it, on your, your life and and what are the things that are va- the values are important, but also how um, good, a good way of coping with that also is to sort of say, well, you know, there's probably been times when they couldn't think of a time that was relevant to them that was comparable because there's nothing comparable to what happened last year. But if you go back a few generations, then you can they can identify well, actually, you know, the Great Depression, the wars were quite significant times, and I think that that's uh, that's often a good way of just sort of articulating what, what, what we've gone through, but also the fact that we have got a we have got a lot of scaffolding and supports around us that a lot of people didn't have at the time. You talk a bit about this part of you that significantly more needs to be done. It would be working in a, as a senior public servant would be quite a a well after, a well sought after ambition or <laughs> traits, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, look. I think so. And um, you know, I came into the public service 20 years ago uh, on a biotech ag- agenda. And so government had been interested in uh, getting ha- a higher economic output out of our expertise in health and medical research. And, and you know, to be perfectly honest, I thought you know, I'd come in for three years, five years, and then go back into industry because I've actually, you know, I spent 15 years in industry. And what I hadn't appreciated was the complexity and the breadth of the topics that you get to do something about uh, in government. And here I am 20 years later, don't do the mathematics on adding all that up, please. <laughs> but, um, and, um, and I think uh, having it... Education broadly, but science and technology and and innovation as an area where I've spent most of my life now uh, doing something about and just enabling the economy to be able to pick up on the latest technology and to encourage other people, students, young students or mature age students to to prepare themselves to either be smart users of technology or to really get to grips with the technology so that they can be practitioners of technology. And so that that remains an an ongoing priority uh, for us, uh, for government, because, you know, you just need to look at how rapidly we were able to respond to recent circumstances because a lot of effort had gone into in the build-up and we just needed that trigger to, to really pull it all together. And I think, you know, to, to the digital technologies that have enabled us to do business almost as usual over the past um, 12 months or so. And the rate of change of technology development is, is so fast that we, we can't Rest. We've got a. There's something significant more yet to be done. Oh, I know. It's, well, it's a never. It's a never-ending, never-ending thing. That would have been on the drum Brumby, would it? You would come in on the, on the drum Brumby as a minister. Was that time? I think twenty years yes. ago. So, yeah, so, right. yes. Yeah, so yeah, he was. Okay. Min- yeah, minister of state development. I think at the time. Yeah, if I, if I remember correctly. Right. Yeah, which I mean, there's a part of you I really pick up. It's not just, not just about doing, but actually, there's a whole part here about this story about you in a way that's connected to a legacy or. Or educating, yeah. There's there's a real part there for you. It's not more. It's not just about just doing something. It's actually just about, yeah. There's a whole part here around education of others. Like, where does that come from, from your perspective? I suppose I 
consider myself fortunate in having been able to go to university. So it's probably fair to say that if it wasn't for the policies of the late, you know, the mid to late seventies, I might not have ever gone uh, to to university. Uh, it was, as I said, no one in my family had really been before, and uh, no one really understood it, other than uh, it uh, was. We always had a priority on on education, and so so I feel that I've been privileged to have have had the support that I have had through. Uh, government policy, and that in part goes to giving back to society as a result of of having that experience and knowing how valuable and important education is to enable people to actually uh, fulfil whatever aspirations that they have. And you're really, I think, uh, one's really behind the eight ball if you don't have a good education. And so it's almost like a platform on which then it's up to the individual to really take advantage of and, and do something with. But Would you classify that as your turning point or, or you might have had several turning points in your life? But... The turning point that I really think about when people raise that was, so I actually, yeah, I've had I'll give you a couple of examples and and no doubt there's some common threads in there. And so when I finished my year 12 and my plan was to go to university and, and to do a science degree. And then I thought, because in those days, it wasn't really that common to take a gap year. And I set myself the objective that if I got a career job, so I was prepared to defer for a year on the condition that I found a job that it's not necessarily a career job, but wasn't a checkout ticket or a waitress or something like that. So it had to, had to, I gave myself some very loose criteria, one of which it had to be a meaningful job. And, uh, and so I looked in, in the paper and I actually applied for a, a quality control uh, laboratory assistant at Nicholas Pharmaceuticals. So I don't know whether you remember Nicholas, they make or they made Activide, Asproclear, Staminate. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. Yep. That, um, uh, and Radox uh, salts. And so I was successful in getting that job and uh, spent a year, one of the best years of my life working in the quality control lab. And it really uh, reinforced my determination to go and do science because I got the grand total of $69 a week. That was my first real salary. And we had to line up at the the hole in the wall and, and get our cash uh, weekly wage. And at the time, uh, so I was actually ended up being and once I got the hang of it, quite responsible in terms of the, the sorts of products that I was assaying. And in those days, there were typing pools and the typists got a whole 10 or $15 more a week than we did in, in the laboratory. So it was, um, I mean, that wasn't the purpose of, of doing it, but it really uh, underscored that you needed a skill and an accreditation at a skill level that you just didn't get by being an assistant. And so it just, um, I don't know, it just gave me a perspective about my latest studies that uh, that I, I still remember and have a little bit of a laugh about <laughs> these days. 
So I went to uni and I didn't really know what I was going to do. I didn't approach university as a vocation. I just thought it was something that I wanted to do for studies. And I had confidence in myself that whatever I wanted to do, I'd go about uh, securing it. And so I almost fell into honours and then I really enjoyed what I was doing. So I continued with a PhD. It was never really part of my plan. And then, of course, a lot of PhDs think that the only career course is to go and do a postdoc, which is mean, you know, which means you go overseas and find someone who will take you and then you get on the treadmill of getting grants and living hand by mouth. And I thought, do I really want to do that? And I remember sitting in the CAF at Melbourne University thinking, uh, I don't think an academic career is something that I really aspire to. I could see what was going on around me by other uh, postdocs coming back from overseas and them having to, you know, do what they have to do. So I just had one of those eureka moments in the CAF and decided I'd go into industry and again, just went looking for a role and uh, was successful in getting a role with a local subsidiary of a pharmaceutical company doing clinical research. And I was thinking about this the other day because my studies were actually in experimental pharmacology, so doing stuff in the lab. And the first job that I got in industry was actually being an arm's length manager of a clinical trial. And people talk about we don't have expertise in Australia in clinical trials, which I think is absolutely rubbish. That was my first job. And I remember my first I remember my first day vividly because the managing director gave me the regulatory book. So, uh, if, and you know, people would be familiar with the Therapeutics Goods Administration. So that's the National Regulatory Agency. And Barry, my boss, gave me the book, and he said, "Amanda, I expect you to be my expert on everything to do with regulation of medicines in Australia. And I, I remember gulping and thinking, I've just come out of a lab and here's this guy expecting me to be the expert. But what he was doing was clearly delegating and authorising me to, um, to skill up in this area. And it was so empowering. And he must have placed immense trust in me because I hadn't had experience in running a clinical trial and there was no one else it was me having to learn on the job and anyway it the good news is it worked out well for him it worked out well for me but there was an incredible amount of trust that he placed in someone who hadn't necessarily got all the you know the ticks in the boxes and that's something that I think about a lot when particularly with the graduate program because I'm a mentor of a number of graduates and the bright young things that are coming through and I go back thinking just because you're young doesn't mean that you can't pick things up quickly and really make a difference so uh, anyway that's that's really that's interesting, a long yeah. answer to your, your story your question I think it's really really insightful in a way. But what does it tell you about? I mean, that's an experience. But what does it tell you about you? Like, what does it tell you about your personality? Yeah. So, for someone who's who's known to be relatively quiet, I don't mind taking a risk. You know, I I always find when I'm comfortable that I I go and and look for something more exciting to do. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, we'll get to that. We'll we'll remember that statement uh, when you said someone's relatively quiet. Because I think that sometimes a misnomer of you know that we think of that about that as being oh well I'm an introverted type person or but there's there's more dimensions to you than than 
what people perceive, I guess. We'll go into that in a sec, but what's a high point in your life? Ah, lots of high points. Uh, probably the one that was really, one that really stands out was, it was about 15 years or so ago now. And, uh, and it relates to what I was doing here in uh, the department when I was director of biotechnology. And w- there was a lot of pent up demand for expansion of a number of medical research institutes and also an ability to aggregate particularly our neuroscience institutes. So we had a number of high quality but subscale institutes. And I was given the task to, in six weeks, effectively put all of the policy work and given that it needed to go to cabinet, a lot of the cabinet documentation to support a decision that ended up being released as the Healthy Futures Life Sciences Statement back in 2006, where we provided $230 million of stimulatory capital, if you like, into a range of projects that ended up attracting close to a billion dollars of co-investment from philanthropy, from the Commonwealth government, from international sources. I had occasion to review that work last year and thinking 15 years or so ago now, we made these investments. So what did we get for our money? What's the lasting legacy? We had mixed views at the time. Some of them were relatively not risky investments because they were worthwhile things to do and people who knew what to do with them. But in terms of really the economic outcome that we were seeking, a lot needed to happen in in order for that to be realised. That's amazing. Just thinking about that, so what does that stand out as the biggest, as, as your, I mean, I know there's many high points, but what, what does that stand out as the high point for you in a way? What, what's the salient uh, about that for you? Yeah, it was, we were working, so I worked with a small team and everyone around us was saying, you're not going to be able to get it done. You know, this is impossible. It's not going to work. You know, so there were all these naysayers. There were people who actually stood back internally, who who thought that it would fail, and it didn't. It was an incredible amount of work to. We, we did at least six months' work of a team that you would have expected to have half a dozen people. There were three of us who just worked day and night to get it done. And we seized the opportunity and just thrashed through it. And I remember it was nine o'clock one night and and the uh, young lady who was working for me, who's gone on to and is having an incredible career herself, she just smashed out these papers and, and for... It wasn't until I came into the public sector that I realised how many different perspectives you needed to accommodate according to the document that you're actually writing because you had to write the policy piece, then you had to write a narrative on top of that, and then you had to do something else. And I, I remember thinking, I don't know how many different ways I can write this and how many more bits of paper do we need to make the decision, which was quite clear what we needed to make. So so that persistence, and uh, I'm bringing back um, bad memories to you, obviously, Franco. <laughs> so. No, no. So I, I think 
I think we completely. I mean, I mean, I, I guess I'm an insider to the public sector because it's such a, a large, substantial part of my career. But people just don't understand it that the amount of work that gets done in the public sector and how complex, how complex it is. It's it's a very it's a unique industry. But you are servicing a whole range of clients, internal, external. You know, there's a lot of substantial. I mean. You know, notwithstanding that I, I sort of part of your cadre, cadre in terms of the the 2000s and the last period of time, but I think the public sector is a very comp- is a very sophisticated advisory body within the context of government. People just don't really get it really <laughs> often. Um, and part of the podcast, in a way, although I'm focused on personalities, I, I am focused on public public service people in a way because I do feel like it, it um, it's a good way of articulating that there's more complexity than people realise. But that's a really interesting one in a way. I guess I'm getting a real picture of you at the moment is, you know, sort of develop. You're not afraid to get into things. You're not afraid to take up a challenge. That's well, that, right. That would be down if you're right. So take me, through, take me through a low point then. Yeah, a low point. So I was thinking about that and there's been plenty of them and being able to pull yourself out of the low points, I think, is uh, the trick that I've um, I, I've learned and, and – um, uh, so I try not to let them get in the way <laughs> too much. And the the low point that sticks in in my mind and uh, was I was in a situ- I was given a, a task to do. So there was a, a research facility, let's call it that, that needed um, uh, more dollars. So there's plenty of research facilities that require more dollars, but this was a high profile one. And I had to negotiate uh, with another government and I might just leave it at that. And there was something that was really quite obvious to do. And, and I was wanting to go from point A to point B. And I remember going interstate to uh, commence the open the batting, if you were, and, you know, I was thinking, I'll go to this location, we'll, you know, I'll just map out what I thought was a very sensible, straightforward, it wasn't, it wasn't a radical solution whatsoever, but just common sense. And we went to the meeting with high expectations. I thought I'd come back on the plane and, and you know, three months, six months or so, because it often takes a while to negotiate a deal and I'd done deal doing and when I was in the industry. Anyway, <laughs> we got to the meeting and the people on the other side of the table wanted to go back to first principles. And instead of readily accepting quite a common sense proposal, they wanted to go back, I don't know, a century in order to start negotiations from a century you know I'm speaking metaphorically obviously and I was on the plane I felt so depressed I was so low and um and I was thinking why am I feeling so bad uh, I, you know and, and I knew part of it was because what I thought would have been a straightforward step forward we'd in you know we'd gone back half a dozen steps and I was doing the Victorian Leadership Development um, Centre course at the time and uh, it so happened that that week when I got back and I I was really, you know, not clinically depressed but (laughs) really thinking, oh, how am I going to cope with the next 12 months because that's what it would have been and what it ended up being. And there was a Harvard Business Review article that was circulated by VLDC and it was entitled The Power of Small Wins. 
And um, it's readily available if you want to Google it. It's, um, I think you can download it. And, and what it's basically, the point that it's making is, and particularly, I suppose, for people like me, it, um, it doesn't matter, you know, sometimes you move the game forward inch by inch and sometimes it goes forward a little bit faster than that. But when you're going backwards, that's when, uh, you know, people have the reaction like I had. I felt that I, I wasn't, there, not only was there no momentum, it was going backwards and, and you know, I was further along the solution than the people I was dealing with. And it just clicked in my head. And I thought, oh, that explains why I'm feeling so lousy is <laughs> because, you know, I'm, I'm not making progress. And uh, so anyway, that was one of the most influential things. And it, it, stuck, it stuck with me since then. So whenever I'm feeling out of sorts or, yeah, just frustrated, I suppose, I try and analyse it and I look at it through is part of the reason I'm feeling like I am because we're not moving the game forward and mostly it is. Not always, but mostly. Well, and I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a even maybe another subtext to that too. Is it, is it, is it this Amanda projecting something onto this as well from a point of view not so projecting but it's well I guess it is projecting but there's a there's a there's a part where you always got to move forward and not everyone is has the same objective and some people their, their small wins might be completely different to yours as well and um, so that maybe talks to sometimes what is this need for us to sort of think have I made have I why can't they understand what's going on what have I not communicated this enough have I not so it goes in, does it go into that sort of space sometimes when things aren't moving? So what am I contributing to this? You know, what am yeah. I doing? And so you're attributing uh, all the, the the reasons why it's not happening onto yourself in a way. Is that, is yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, kind of. And I think what it taught me, it was probably a really good lesson for me because uh, – <laughs> I need to be reminded from time to time that not everyone thinks the way that I do. <laughs> that, uh, there are other. It, it, it really does. It really does help, Amanda, when you when you start, you start to realise <laughs> it saves you a lot of issues. <laughs> exactly. So um, and and it's something that, in fact, in my current job, and I sort of I live by the mantra of align and connect because, effectively, when you've got to. And it goes to what I think is the heart of the richness of the public sector is that you've got to think in 360 degrees, which doesn't necessarily mean you need to think in 360, but you need to get the 360 degree perspectives because it goes to your point that not everyone, you know, everyone thinks the same way and they, they come at a problem or an opportunity from completely different perspectives. And that's not my discovery. It's, you know, it, it's at the heart of what diverse, diversity is all about. Uh, and um, we have diverse processes to get that complexity, that richness of thinking, so that we're considering uh, whatever it might be from a whole range of different perspectives. So, so that experience was actually good for me. And um, as has been a number of different policy areas that are somewhat contentious that I've had to work on. And so over the years, I've worked on GMOs, so genetically modified organisms, so that mostly related to agriculture, stem cell legislation, 
and then more recently I, I was asked in, in this role by government to chair a community stakeholder group. I spent so long doing it now. That is a stakeholder advisory panel for onshore conventional gas. So this was really a, a program where uh, government wanted scientific information to inform a policy decision and it was important that government heard the perspectives of everybody from the local community, uh, from farmers, from union players, from industry and so on. So you get the, the picture. It was about trying to ensure that the work that was being done took into consideration the multitude of perspectives that ultimately uh, would uh, be brought to bear on what government chose to do with whatever the science said. So it's part and parcel of the public sector and I enjoy doing it, even though, you know, sometimes it, it helps me manage myself in insofar as not j jumping ahead and, and actually taking the time to fully understand all the issues and, and the way that people think about it. And it's when you don't get alignment of values or uh, views about what needs to be done or could be done that either things don't work or they work badly. And so it's a great investment of time and energy to, to, to go through the exercise. Uh, we'll go back to that one in a second. It's not alignment part. But um, I want to ask you, when you're 18, would you ever thought you'd be the chief scientist of Victoria? No. <laughs> so what, what, what were you thinking? Like, what was your narrative at 18 about yourself? I mean, you sort of talked a little bit about that earlier, but like if there was yeah. a narrative you had about yourself. So, no, I didn't even know what narrative was other than in a novel. <laughs> and, what, 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 what were you telling yourself who you were? Maybe that's another way of thinking about uh, it. I, I knew that I wanted to go to university. I knew that I wanted to do science. I was always interested in pharmacology, which was my core discipline. And I suppose if I thought about it at all, and it's fair to say I didn't think about it too mm. much, I've got to say, uh, it was to have a role in the pharmaceutical industry. Mm. And my father was a sales representative in, in the industry, so I kind of knew a little bit about it, mm. but I was not cut out. I wasn't set on following him in his role. I wanted to be more at the technical end. And, and I achieved that, actually, when I think about it in terms of not only my gap year, but then in my very first role in, in industry. And, and what I learnt was that I, uh, once I had mastered something, I was looking for something else. And that I hadn't realised when I was 18. I didn't know that I hadn't understood that I was always wanting to do something to build on whatever I'd accomplished before. So. Yeah. So what's the, what's your what's your narrative now? Now that you understand the term versus when you were eighteen, you know what's your narrative like? How would you how do you think about yourself looking back? You know, integrating the past, the present, and thinking forward. Yeah. So in terms of looking back, I think about and what I see is someone who didn't necessarily have a formal plan, but considered the steps that I took pretty carefully. So there's an element of risk-taking there, 
but not to the extent that many people do these days with entrepreneurship, which I think, you know, I've, I've never left a role without having some idea about or having secured another role. And, and I met a young woman last week where they've got a successful business now, but they had to really take big risks and mortgage their house and, and all the rest. So I've not ever done that. Uh, and so, so I see that I've had a sort of a, I've always self-motivated to get to the next thing, but I've always had that trajectory. Where I see myself now is using the role that I've got the privilege to have to either do or both to do things that uh, are relevant to the current uh, policy areas uh, of government, but then to drive the agenda forward. So when I think of and the way that we, in the department, we think a lot about where our strengths are and there's very good reason to do that. So what are the strengths in the economy? And that's fine because you should be focusing on those areas, but not at the point of that you're not looking forward. And what I see going forward is huge change in technologies. So with quantum technologies, with the huge investment in space that both the private sector and governments are doing. So what what can we do to position Victoria in those emerging areas? So I don't know whether I'm answering your question, but I'm telling you what I'm planning to do. <laughs> I'm intrigued by that, but I actually be more interested in how you see yourself. I can understand where that's all going, but I mean, clearly that yeah. your work's so important in a way, isn't it? Like it's yeah. You, it, 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 there's a part here that you find very difficult to. Where, where are you, the person in that role? Like, where, where's yeah. Amanda? So, in so, so I'm the facilitator. I'm both the leader by saying, "Hey, this is important," but I don't need to be. I see my role as being pointing to things that are important and then building the team around that, which may or may not include me. It probably includes me at the get-go just to make sure that, you know, it's it's broadly the construct, the right construct is there. But then I can move on to other things. So it's this concept of building and then letting others take on the implementation. So I'm, I'm good at the front end and I, I've got enough persistence and perseverance to do implementation up to a certain point, but then it's probably better for someone else to take it on to do the, the further development. So to that extent, I'm not unlike people with a bit of an aspirational entrepreneurial bent, but it's, yeah, I'm the provocateur early intervener and and know when to bow out and hand it on to people more competent and better skilled at doing the implementation. Okay, well, let's just, just draw some linkages here because I think that part of you, in a way, and I, maybe I'm provoking you a bit here, but I always think that's always been there, hasn't That part of you has always been a bit like that. You know, it's always been about pushing the envelope a bit, pushing boundaries, like not in, a, not in, in, in an unconventional manner, but more, you know, not afraid to to see the opportunity, you know, try to push that to that opportunity, be intellectually curious about stuff, about issues and and uh, adventurous. I think that's probably I had words like adventurous and brave in, in there too, courageous in some respects. And I think that does connect a little bit to your personality traits 
like if you think about the first layer of this, which is your dispositional trait, which is often a, a part of us that is like our true self, put away context, put away storytelling or narrative. This is like a heavy biological disposition in some respects. So extroversion, for example, you know, you talked a bit about being a, this, this quiet person, right? But, but in fact, your score is actually very is average. You know, you're not necessarily high or low. Uh, there's probably a couple of areas that might be identified with your traditional view about quiet, which is you're not gregarious. Like it's probably part of you is not, you know, the um, you know, heavily out, not you can't be, but this heavily outgoing person in some respects. But um, but where you're high, where you're high in this in this sort of tra- sub traits level of extroversion is activity based. You're like you're just very energetic in terms of what you do. So maybe the way we often think about extroverts has been always this outgoing person, uh, socially oriented. It's not something you don't do, not necessarily don't do, but you probably it's more in the, that aspect of being boisterous and life of the party, so to speak, which is not that you can't do it, but you don't, it's not something you tend to do. But this activity base is really quite high. Another one that you mentioned, which I thought was really quite interesting, was this part of you around alignment, which is really quite a continuity. There's a real strong feature of maybe a strong feature of your public sector career, but it's always, but there's this, there's this trait around agreeableness, which is you, a tendency to feel put the harmony and cooperation and being in concert with others versus personal interest. And you're, you're high in this trait as well, which means that you're more agreeable than disagreeable. So you probably come across people in your life that have always put their own self-interest ahead of the, the, the group. So what I saw here is uh, trust, you know, do have a lot of trust in people, even when you think about, you know, I assume it was a Commonwealth, but I don't know, but you know, another government, you know, the, another jurisdiction. And, you know, if you go, oh, we're all on the same page here, aren't we? Like, you know, well, no, no, we're not. But you had a little trust associated with that. Altruism, always looking for the good part of the, you know, of an outcome uh, and, and goodness of others and trying to seek that outcome. And modesty, which I assume is for you would be you're probably very modest in your achievements as opposed to, you know, always spouting what they are. And there's a part of you that's always always very sympathetic, empathetic, and compassionate to others as well. So there's this 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 part of you that's quite high in this agreeableness, which always seeks alignment. Which I think you've used quite a lot in in the, the interview today. Conscientiousness is also a very high trait as well for you. And conscientiousness means you know being a level of order and discipline, achievement, striving, being able to complete things and do things and get things done. And that's always a well sought after trait in uh, all professional life or any life, I guess, in some respects. But it, this third comes, what's really one of your highest sub-traits in this is, is self-efficacy. There's a level of confidence in who you are. You know, there's a confidence, I can actually give me a task to do and I'll try to complete it. I will do it, get it done. This other trait, which is around neuroticism, which is more of your emotional reactivity, which is more to do with our arousal system of our nervous system, our flight and fight. And this one here, you can, when you're high, you've got a very high arousal system, which means that you, you react to things in a, in a very emotional way, right? But for you, it's a low trait. You know, it's not a, you know, you're more likely to not be that engage a lot emotionally into an issue. So low in anxiety, uh, vulnerability, you know, panic, you're able to, con- you know, able to contain your, yourself in that context emotionally. And the fifth trait is around uh, openness to experience, which is more about a flavor of fantasy versus ideas, you know, conventionality versus, versus non-conventional ways of thinking through things. And this actually was quite interesting because you're actually very high 
in openness to experience. So the, the, sub, the particular areas that you're interested in is very high in is adventurousness that you actually engage, you know, you like to engage in different, you know, you, you, you're unlikely to be constrained by talk about this sort of cautiousness, you know, you, you put yourself out there and explore and that's probably the, the scientific research a part of you, but in a very uncontained way, right? You know, you're not afraid to go down a particular path. And intellectual intellect, which is more you're interested in more fluidity in ideas versus concrete ideas or fixed ideas, you know. So I don't know, that that's a dispositional layer. Does that resonate with you, what I just talked about? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Well so, it makes sense because you saw you, you you did the did the questionnaire on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's um it's interesting to see it reflect back and and in fact that's um I always you know some people run a mile I've struck people that worked for me who've run a mile when asked to do a psychological test and I always find it incredibly useful because it does increase your self-awareness to certain situations so um, Yeah, yeah. yeah so that's one layer the other layer is around needs so and often this layer comes sort of later in life and it contains with our sense of our environment. And I think there's a large part of you around these high levels of standards. There's a high expectation you have of yourself around meeting all your responsibilities, not settling for good enough. And I think that this, this is a large part of you in a sense of sometimes can be interpreted as being like our default need, emotional need in some ways. Like it's a, it can be a coping mechanism too, right? Because it's about, how do I, this where it intersects with your, your personality, but also there's another part of you that always feels like I've got to achieve something. I always try to try to get some, get that, the maximum out of that outcome. And that example of you used around the engagement with the other jurisdiction was a low point because it, it struck, it triggered you in a particular way to think, oh, I haven't achieved that. Why can't I achieve that outcome? And sometimes attributing that to yourself too, like, well, maybe sometimes there's, a, there's, a, there's an incorrect attribution to yourself in that regard. Another one is is this um, self-sacrificing part, which is really taking care of other people. There's, there's a strong, tr- strong need for you to feel that you, you do need to. There's a legacy or there's a part of you that feels like you need to provide care for others. And sometimes that can, that can rub against this, to have an adequate way of demand, articulating my needs to be respected, my needs to be respected, to my thinking a lot about the others needs uh, and i often wonder if this is something that comes up for you is uh, sometimes people don't see this emotionality from you because you, you you control a lot of that maybe some of that's part of your emotional reactivity and people that sometimes may perceive that as being unemotional or not not connected to their feelings right i don't know if there's a part of you that feels that way at times it's just a, it's, it's just things that get triggered in us in some respects and we've all got something so Amanda, you probably realise you're not perfect, but anyway, but that's uh, that's okay. <laughs> that's <laughs> but, right. But how, but how do you resonate? How do you feel about the, that layer of you? So yeah, combination of things. So first of all, um, I gave up on perfection ten years ago because yeah, I, I did tend to be uh, trying to be perfect, and now I just try to be over the threshold where it's uh, it's. Yeah, I've always got high standards, and I always uh, I haven't let go of the perfection ambition, but uh, I'm I find it easier to reconcile less than that. So so that's important. And then yeah, when I I actually did a, a Herman brain uh, that might not be quite the right instrument, and um, the 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 thing is that 
I'm, I'm highly conceptual. I forget the exact framework, but under stress. So you, you do it when you're under stress. And my interpersonal skills go to zero. And I remember the person who was administering the test and because we did it as part of a team building thing. And she was almost afraid to share or, or suggest that I share my results with the team. And I had a, a good laugh when I saw it because it's it's exactly what people experience is, you know, and, and I've been described as the ice queen by people just because when I'm so focused on getting an outcome, I don't, I don't see anything else around. So it's not that I'm intentionally remote it's just that I'm so consumed by whatever it is that I'm thinking about that I just you know forget to acknowledge that there are other people around but you know but there's an interesting thing there isn't it because in some ways I, I do feel that there's a part there of you though that uh that has a great deal of empathy and, and connection to people and really wanting to the, the words you use, you know, like I mean, align, connect. I think that, you know that that's something I think for you is really quite an important part of who you are. It just gets it's sort of like it's there's another part that almost another part of it that overrides that that people sort of see more predominantly, which actually is about let's get the outcome done and get the achievement done and get the. But they're both actually quite high. But it's actually interesting that people see probably see one part of that sometimes more than the other. Susan, that's right. Which is yes. interesting, but. Uh, but you know what's interesting about your narrative, though, just going back to connecting this together in a way, is I actually think that there is that 18-year-old person beating in your beating in your body today, right? Because there's quite a lot, there's a, a lot, a really strong continuity there. And maybe there's a part also that's evolved in a sense of saying, you know, like I, I, um, I do part of, maybe it's a bit about this this perfectionism part that you are willing to, you know, think about yourself in the context of, well, I don't have to take that lead all the time. I can lead, but I don't have to do it all the time. And there probably would have been a, been a part of you in your, you know, 20 years ago, like or 15 years ago, where you probably needed to do a lot more of that yourself. And now sort of thinking back and saying, okay, well, I'm now more of a steward in this context rather than a, than a doer in that context. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And yeah, so, I think you've hit the nail on the head because particularly in this role, I can at 100,000 feet or in suborbit and I can see all these pieces and I've got the ability to steward those pieces together and and I'll hang around for long enough to make sure that they hold together but then move on. And, and, and that's, you know, when I think about my roles on boards and of a number of different projects and initiatives uh, that's where I had the most value and and it, I was thinking so 15 or so years ago I would have aspired at some point in my career to be a CEO but actually I now know enough to know that actually that's probably not me and that because it doesn't fulfill the stewardship so much and the the broader perspective, which is not to say that CEO roles can't do that, but it's not a hundred percent aligned yeah. with yeah. my skill set. Or where we or where so. your personality is too, maybe. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I mean, I don't know what 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 have you learned about yourself today that I don't know you may not have known as much about before. I suppose it's just reinforcing and, and making me think about narrative because I think narrative is important about where you've come from and where you're going. And it helps to identify the strengths, personal strengths and 
preferences and being able to better articulate and remove from the detail because sometimes I get down into the technical detail too quickly and to rise above and think more broadly about my role and narrative I think is something that I've got out of it that I probably wouldn't have naturally come to, uh, not in the time frame that we've had. No, it's good. So, no, it's been great. I've enjoyed chatting with you. Oh, it's great. Well, Amanda, that's been absolutely fantastic. So thank you for your time today. Great. Thanks, Franco. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please let me know what you think of this podcast episode or the podcast series in general. I respond to all reviews and really love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future guests to interview. You can also rate this episode on your favorite podcast platform. I would really appreciate this so that other people can hear about how you experience the show. You can also sign up to a regular newsletter, which you can find on the podcast webpage. Look forward to presenting new and interesting guests soon. Bye for now.